This is for us, and I make fun very well. This, this is, is for, yes, a massage of the, as you see on the box. You see? Oh. For those hard to get at places. Thank you for the bleep we're about to receive on the Lord's Day. Hey! What are you doing? How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. What's your hunt this time? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking uh, Isaac Hayes just kicking a whole bunch of ass, so join the sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over three years now. Yeah. There's 70, maybe even 80 bonus episodes waiting for you guys. We haven't made the jump yet. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, we should give those shout outs here. We had a lot this week. So thanks to uh, Ross McWilliams, Ziltoid Lives, Peter Faint, uh, Juicer used to be Greg, <laughs> Daniel Fenner, Dennis Duffy, John Hayes, uh, Stephen Rice, Primrose Path, Kyle Mares, JP, Merrick Alazi, uh, Lobe, oh my god, Lobeeps, Lobips, huh? sorry man, uh, Bradley Main Guy, <laughs> and Cody. Collins. So thanks awesome. so much to you folks. Hope you guys are enjoying all those uh, bonus episodes. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Patreon's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, I know that you are right now listening. Scroll down to the bottom right now and give us a good old rating and review down at the bottom. Helps us climb the rank in iTunes and find new listeners that way. And uh, what's the other plug? The last plug, the newer plug, uh, merch. Sleaze always. We have yeah. we have merch. If you guys like the poster art that uh, horror artist Trevor Henderson uh, drew for us for the show, you can get that now. Pretty much put on anything you want: a mug, a shirt, a hoodie, pillows, uh, a, a, a notebook. Someone bought a pillow. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so if you have any interest in Sleazoids merch, you can find the link in the description or go to sleazoidspodcast.com. Uh, but yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's the intro. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, my name as always, uh, is Josh Lewis and joining me also as always my co-host Jamie Miller. Welcome back everybody. Welcome back to another week. I think, uh, bringing up our, our, our Excel spreadsheet here, <laughs> uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys would have heard from us. And, uh, we would have been talking with special guest, uh, horror filmmaker and author Perry Rulland. Yeah. Uh, third time returning guest who as always when he appears on her show he likes to gross out every single yep. one of our listeners we go sicko mode for sure so last week you guys got to hear us talk about a little underrated giallo called uh the house with the laughing windows 
which, uh, you know, had, had a little bit of uh, Sergio Martino, a little bit of Lucio Fulci in it, and it had a pretty wild finale involving <laughs> uh, painters uh, learning the path to living forever via art, uh, but still very corpse-ridden finale. And uh, we also talked about, alongside that, the um, sort of shot-on-video gore horror film Mermaid in a Manhole. Oh, my which God. Which involved an, an, an artist finding a mermaid in the sewer, bringing her to his apartment as she basically uh, became a giant cancerous boil that explodes colors, <laughs> and he used those colors to paint a portrait uh, of her. <laughs> yes, a lot of a lot of blood and and other bodily fluids in that movie. Perhaps too much. Yeah, a lot of really disgusting show. textures to describe, <laughs> and I hope you guys uh, enjoyed listening <laughs> to all of <laughs> listening them. Listening and watching, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but last week, for you guys' bonus episodes, uh, we celebrated some Irish excellence. St. <laughs> Patrick's right. Day. Uh, and uh, we, we, we had to get into the mode of, of you know, Irish culture in America in the horror genre. So we talked about the first three movies in the Leprechaun franchise. <laughs> Leprechaun. <laughs> Leprechaun 2. And the, the direct-to-video sequel, Leprechaun 3, which just had Warwick, Warwick Davis running around, saying naughty limericks, and A lot of uh, killing various people. Uh, very mixed results franchise, <laughs> yes, we shall say. Definitely. Um, definitely one of our uh, episodes where we talk about movies we weren't crazy about. Yep. But still still a sort of interesting little curiosity in the same vein as for anyone who listened to our Christmas episode this year. We did Jack Frost, the killer <laughs> snowman. Um, yeah, it's right up uh, de- right up that alley for sure. It's in that definitely same something kinda... worth worth watching once uh, <laughs> exactly. to get an idea of what what horror trends were like when the slasher movies ended, and we didn't, you know, between <laughs> the slasher craze and the uh, more uh, torture porn era of the two thousands. What were they doing? They were doing some basically weird shit. just a bunch of juvenile men making a dick jokes with uh, with violence. <laughs> That's essentially what it was. It was a good time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so again, if you want that that episode, that was last week's bonus episode, sleezoidspodcast.com uh, and patreon.com slash sleezoidspodcast. But yeah, moving on to uh, this week's episode, we have a very special guest joining us, someone who I've been meaning to have on the podcast for a long time and who pitched this double feature. I don't know how long ago, but these two movies have been saved for him specifically for at least a year, maybe even longer. (laughs) Uh, We have a friend of the show and host of uh, his own movie podcast that I, some of you, uh, you know, some of our listeners should be familiar with since I've guested on it a couple times, the Extended Clip Podcast. Welcome, uh, Eddie Averill. Eddie, how are you doing? Hey guys, I am pretty good. Um, I mean, you guys know that's a lie because off mic, I told you about how I've had diarrhea all morning. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I'm pretty good. Also, I, I'm really like, I'm excited to go through those leprechaun movies as a recent patron, but uh, as a recent patron rather, but I really hope yeah. you guys like stick with it because I know it seems a little treacherous at first, but I, I hope that within the next year you can have me back on for a double feature of Leprechaun in the Hood <laughs> and Leprechaun Back to the Hood. Oh, because uh, yeah. I think those are like really the films that I should be here to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I am definitely. down. No, hundred <laughs> percent. 
<laughs> we uh, also weird that he goes to space before going to the hood. I also find just it a weird yeah. turn of events. That it's the only like subtitled one because the first three are just one, two, three, and then four. They were like, no, we got to explain that he's going to space. That's got to be in the title. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they were they, they were cashing in on that that Jason X. Yes, definitely uh, craziness. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but I think here, it's that it, that end of the slasher era. You just have to throw out the numbers and get crazy with the titles. Yes, H two O. You know, <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> That's right. See, see what you can throw on a poster and what people will go. Well, I need to see that. Uh, <laughs> I need to see that 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 little fucking leprechaun fucker go to space, hanging baby. out with the aliens yeah. and shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Eddie, uh, as as the show goes, as I'm sure you know, we have the guests bring on the double feature with them. So, what two films uh, have you brought with you this week, and why do they pair together? All right. So the double feature is Targets and High Mom. Uh, Targets, the 1968 film by Peter Bogdanovich, and High Mom, exclamation point, uh, the 71 film, the early effort by Sleazoid's god, Brian De Palma. (laughs) Now, I wanted to talk about these because New Hollywood has always been intriguing to me. Uh, Early in my cinephilia, I would say, like, the genre revisionism of New Hollywood was so huge for me. Stuff like Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller... Uh, was just like, oh, okay, now I understand genre because I couldn't quite grasp the old-timey films, you know, uh, the mm-hmm. classic Hollywood ones yet. And now I have a better grasp on those. And, you know, classic Hollywood has kind of become my area of expertise over the last two years, or at least my preferred mode of cinema. And so looking back at these new Hollywood classics, uh, it, it's fun to find ones that were more outliers. You know, I think Target's, is not really a revisionist film. It's Peter Bogdanovich wanting to go back. You know, Peter Bogdanovich respects the classic as much as anybody else. Uh, and and High Mom, I think, is on the other end of the spectrum where Brian De Palma, a god of pastiche, you know, you've talked about multiple of his hip, Hitchcock riffs on this mm-hmm. show, but this is where he's in his kind of Godardian phase of looking outside of his influences and trying to find like a new version of cinema, trying to rebuild kind of this politically conscious uh, and really revolutionary, but also ironic and comedic uh, and brash filmmaking to the forefront before a new Hollywood style was kind of, you know, coalesced around guys like him, Spielberg, Lucas, etc. So yeah, these two movies are just like odds and ends of that movement that I think are just absolute masterpieces too. Yeah, it's it's an an interesting time period. And these two films, especially, I mean, you know, I I wouldn't say necessarily they feel forgotten, but they feel like, you know, they they aren't as big as, you know, what the, uh, you know, what, what would what would come out of, you know, people like against Spielberg and Scorsese and you know, what what the kind of films that they would make in this period would go on to kind of define it. Um, And so it's interesting to go back and see it sort of like just burgeoning as well, because 1968, obviously for uh, targets, it's just like, you know, like we we're weirdly like kind of on the precipice. It's a movie that's in conversation with 30s films and 50s films and sort of predicting what 70s films <laughs> yeah. are going to look and feel like in a way. Um, but you also so, have the like new Hollywood already setting in basically. Like if you look at something, there's been a lot of revisionism on this topic and uh, you look at something like Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Uh, you have Peter Fonda in that movie, an icon of this era, 30 years later looking back and he has a great line in that movie where he says, you know, really it was only 66 and part of 67. 
Uh, and I think <laughs> that the, the true hippie energy uh, that was wasted, like used <coughs> over the next 10 years to such a dreary extent, uh, like Bogdanovich was already fully aware of that here in 68. Like uh, he, he's making this film for Roger Corman and Roger Corman had already made, you know, the two films that kind of predated Easy Rider, uh, The Trip and The Wild Angels. And then Easy Rider comes out and Bogdanovich is just like, no, 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 no. You got it. You don't get the old movies. Like I, I get the old movies. Let me show you how it's done through this new style of Corman exploitation style movie making. Definitely. Definitely. Well, well, that being said, I think we're going to uh, just jump right into it here. We are going to start off uh, chronologically here. We are going to begin with targets. Takes you for a roller coaster ride through the canyons of a disturbed mind in targets. What turns an all-American boy into an all-American killer? All right, we are talking about Targets, the 1968 American crime thriller film directed, co-written, and co-produced by Peter Bogdanovich. And was was this was this Donovich's debut? Uh, technically, like he, he did some cleanup work on another Corman okay. production that got him a directorial uh, credit. But th- this is his first film. <laughs> wow. And it's the first okay. Bogdanovich Polly Platt film, too. Like that, I think, is really key to point to here. Uh, I, it's gotten a lot of ink already, but obviously the Karina Longworth series on Polly Platt goes into great depths of her contributions to, you know, Bogdanovich's films as well as people like James L. Brooks. Right, right. Um, well, well, targets, uh, very loosely, um, is a kind of, uh, dual mode thriller where it kind of, um, tackles two parallel narratives at the same time. One of, um, you know, this sort of, uh, aging, uh, on the precipice of retirement actor played by Boris Karloff, who is playing kind of a very, uh, loose variation on himself. I, I read up that Roger Corman, his only sort of, like the only reason he offered this to Bogdanovich and said that he could make a movie was if, uh, one, he included, uh, a decent amount of footage <laughs> from, uh, the Boris Karloff, Roger Corman sort of like, uh, production failure, the terror, which was sort of part of his sort of like cheap Gothic Edgar Allan Poe updates that he was doing in the sixties, like sort of like the Raven and the pit and the pendulum. Is that what they're watching uh, in the Price. beginning like the introduction yeah yes oh, so the, okay. the the opening images is he had to include that i thought that was and the reason he had, targets so that's interesting no, no it's a real movie that you can watch that like h- h- the consequence of the production is like you have to include this much footage so bogdanovich just includes it over the opening credits and immediately cuts to karloff this godly like yeah. movie star from the 30s as the lights slowly rise in the projection room he's just like this is the worst thing i've ever seen <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah wow that makes that introduction just just so much more powerful because i i thought it was built for the the movie itself but the fact that they're actually commenting on a on a film that was made by Corman that's that's very interesting 
Yeah, well, no, the, the reason he had to include it was because apparently it didn't make enough money for Karloff to get the pay that he was kind of promised. Okay. That he, he, was, he was offered, like, you know, something like $15,000 if it ended up grossing, like, $150,000. That he, you know, he would get, like, that 10% or whatever. Okay. Um, and, he didn't, and he didn't get it. So he said, okay, look, what if you film for, like, three more days? We <laughs> right. repurpose this footage into another film. And then we make money on that and then I'll pay you just in advance up front. So that was that was where Bogdanovich came in and he said, OK, look, so you, you, you only get him for a limited amount of time, which means that, you know, you, you have to make a story that half the movie is not about Karloff. And you can probably only count on Karloff being in about 20 minutes of your film. <laughs> because okay, he's yeah. also at this point, too, it's worth noting, um, Karloff was quite sick um, as well. Um, I, I was, I was reading up that, um, you know, he had something called rheumatoid, he had rheumatoid arthritis and emphysema at the same time. Uh, and he only had basically like half of one lung working and he spent most of his time between takes, like in a wheelchair, wearing an oxygen mask. He could hardly walk. That's why he's mostly using a cane when he's walking in the scenes that he's walking right. in. Um, so the, the, the performance that he's giving here about, you know, sort of like a, you know, an, a, an actor who is, you know, sick and tired and kind of at the end of his life and thinking he's going to make one last movie. Uh, this actually was Karloff's last movie as well. So they're uh, lucky. Luckily, though, apparently he was able to uh, see the film completed and also, you know, the also see that it was very well received which was something he wasn't getting kind of like late in his career when Corman mm. you know was just trying to use his reputation as an old Universal Monsters actor as kind of like put that name on a poster update him in some you know trashy 60s variation on it people will come and watch it okay. that was kind of what he was doing and what's so interesting is Bogdanovich he's handed that those real production limitations and he just turns them into the story of the movie to make right. them realistic he just basically made mm -hmm. a movie about Karloff in the situation that Karloff is in um, which is a very interesting you know obviously mode uh, to, to tackle that in and then he parallels that with a real deal you know sort of like the the new wave uh exploitation of of horror um yeah. with this focus on this dude named bobby thompson who is just this clean-cut kid who is a you know is a, is, is a veteran and you know he's the kind of dude who calls his dad sir uh, and they say the prayer at the at, at the dinner table and everything. Yeah, and it's painted this dude as just like one day the, cracks the cleanest American suburban family. Like it's just you know that, that yeah. house is spotless the entire time. Just really pretty, uh, uh, bright like pale blue walls and stuff like that. Like it's mm -hmm. just very very clean. Um, and it, it, it definitely uh, contrasts well to where this movie leads. And so I, I really well. What like I love that. about that is, you know, th this is kind of peak counterculture era, and you think like, what is the counterculture rebelling against? And then you go back to those, you know, think about the domestic scenes in like Rebel Without a Cause, and like how the '50s American nuclear family was portrayed. And so here we see in '68, like the rare family that's still like that, and yeah. how demented that seems in 1968. You know, uh, and I love how just absolutely horrific this family is. You know, they're watching late night TV together and kissing each other on the mouth to say good night at 8 p.m. Uh, and it's like <laughs> David Lynch's Inland Empire, or like ra the set of rabbits, or something like that. You know, it's this uh, haunted version of the nuclear family. That 
that was so promoted in the 50s for America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that doesn't you know quite exist in the same in the same way. And mm-hmm. watching this character just crack and essentially go on a you know a, a mass shooting spree, um, which is sort of like the other parallel version of uh, the other parallel story that's happening to Karloff's, and you essentially get this portrait of you know sort of like this 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 aging you know old Hollywood actor being sort of outmoded and replaced by this sort of like, you know, this, this newer version. He's an actor who comes, uh, from an era and they, they do it a lot of times in the movie. They even actually have him tell a spooky story at one point, which I really loved, yeah. but he, you know, he, 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 he comes from an era of horror movies when it, they, you, if you were just a six foot five man who looked kind of funny, they'd put makeup on you. You'd sit in a gothic, gothic castle and they'd tell a scary story. And that scared the shit out of people for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and so what Bogdanovich kind of does here is he's like, what if someone who was part of that production method, who saw that trend, lived long enough that they got to see the era of, you know, someone like a Charles Whitman, who was clearly the basis for the character, the the guy who um, got up in the sniper tower at the University of Texas right. and just started shooting people at random. Um, you know, that is what people are more afraid of at this point. And that's something that Karloff has to directly Mm -hmm. wrestle with is that that's something that's way scarier um, than he ever was. And not only that, what Bogdanovich does goes, takes it even a step further. And then he literally puts Karloff in a movie, an exploitation movie that, you know, uh, capitalizes on those fears that people have of mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Like the movie we're watching targets is a movie that is exploiting those fears and selling those fears back to people. And Karloff lived long enough to see the exploitation movies that they made out of those fears, yeah. which is just, yeah, and I love you know, how, such a, such a crazy thing. I love how clear Bogdanovich is with it too. Like you can't miss that message. And if you think it's obvious, it's like, well, watch some other, you know, 90 minute exploitation movies from this era. Uh, the messaging will be just as clear, but maybe not as profound. Uh, but you have Karloff, you know, telling Bogdanovich at one point, I'm not scary enough anymore. This is what's scary. And he plops down a newspaper with like a headline about a mass shooting. And right, you yeah. also have when Bogdanovich knocks at the door, he even to quote uh, pose the Raven even says, you know, who's that tapping at my chamber door? And it's like he knows that his mode of horror is high camp uh, mm-hmm. and, and his character knows it, too. Uh, and that complexity is so great and it's so self-aware and it almost, you know, we'll talk about a little about Godard when we get to the next one. But this actually reminded me of Godard's contempt. Uh, especially the scenes in the screening room where you have Bogdanovich Mm. trying to convince Karloff and you hear the executives in the background say, did you see that new Antonioni picture? He's a genius. (laughs) Yes. You know, Bogdanovich, probably not a big fan of Antonioni. And he, you know, he, he, at this point he's like nursing, uh, or in a couple of years, he'll be nursing Orson Welles, uh, who is like the biggest, uh, Antonioni hater there is. And, you know, maybe he's not hitting the same marks in terms of like a progressive, a new cinema with new ideas, but he's at least aware that all the movies, all the great movies, uh, have been made. And he has to make these kind of self-aware commentary movies because the raw genre pictures have already been made by guys like Boris and by guys like Howard Hawks. 
Yeah, I mean, I I love the inclusion of Bogdanovich like in the in the film as the yeah. <laughs> young hotshot boy director. Like he 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 casts himself in that role of the guy who is again you know wanting to make films with Boris Karloff, and he wrote a brand new script for him. But it just so happens that Boris Karloff, having just sat down and watched The Terror, is like, I'm fucking done. I'm retiring. <laughs> this is this is I'm I'm out of here. I'm an antique. I'm out of date. He says at one point, and I love that Bogdan. Bogdanovich's response to that is like, like, what are you going to do? Like, what else do you have? Like six months and you'll just <laughs> blow, blow your, your brains fucking out. brains out. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly talk. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, love, but, yeah, but, when uh, he first Karloff, says he's Karloff believes thoroughly. The- he's like, you know, the, the world belongs to the young and make, make way for them. Let, let them have it. And Bogdanovich is sort of a representation of what that young artistry kind of looks like. And I love that scene where he sits down and what's the Hawks movie that he's watching. He's watching the criminal code. Yes. And, and, and he, and he, you just watch him get sucked into the tension of, again, this is a Howard Hawks film, uh, a real Howard Hawks film from 1931 starring Boris Karloff. So they're watching that real film on the television with Boris Karloff using his really intense frame to push this guy through a door frame and then close the door behind him. And it's this very slow moving shot filled with a lot of tension. And you just watch a young Bogdanovich watching this Howard Hawks movie on the TV starring Karloff and just getting sucked in. And his response is all the good movies have been made. Like, how do I top <laughs> that? Like, how do you top that? It, it, it's, it's over. It's done. And the response is targets targets is the only yeah. movie he could come up with this sort of, sort of like meta reflexive idea on, you know, where movies are headed, what the future of movies look like. Um, and I hate to say even, it, but e- I think that's why this is my favorite Bogdanovich movie is because he gets a little bit of an ego after this and thinks he can make a Howard Hawks movie, uh, which, he can't, <laughs> you know, like I, I love what's up doc, but it's like, that isn't him you know, making a meta commentary, that's him trying to do Howard Hawks and Looney Tunes together. And I think Mm. it like works as like a really great movie, but I think targets is just so much more complicated because of like, he knows that he's not Howard Hawks in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I, I I really like, um, Karloff, Karloff's performance, um, specifically, Mm -hmm. um, in here again, he only shot it over the course of like a couple days. So all of these scenes that he had to do, but Bogdanovich used him really well because it's the same like the character that Bogdanovich is playing in the film. He clearly wrote this film for where Karloff is in his life. I think at one point he says, "Nobody else, there's nobody else from my script because the part is you. And he does the yeah. exact same thing to the real life Karloff here. <laughs> and there's so many great moments where Karloff, you know, he he's, he's so excited. He wants to celebrate his freedom from the movie industry. Like after those lights go up and he just hears you know the producers like immediately shooting the shit about boring industry insider shit and he's just like i'm so done with that i'm just gonna you know uh I'm just going to live my life. But when he is given the chance to live his life and he's not talking to his assistant or the young director or the producers or the ad guy, you know, cause that's what his life is so filled with. It's just complete silence. Like there's a moment mm-hmm. when he's talking to his assistant and they go, let's celebrate my freedom. And then he looks out the window and that's it. 
he's like his freedom is just that there's like what is truly next for him there's also a great sort of like um dolly out shot of him sitting uh you know in his hotel room alone with a dinner for two just sitting there because he you know he he's kind of uh being a little bit thorny towards his chinese assistant and uh kind of pushing all of these people away because his relationships to them are entirely based on his reputation as an actor they all work for him in some sort of capacity and he doesn't really want those relationships anymore but they're the only relationships that he has Mm -hmm. uh so there's a lot of really interesting sort of like pain and soul happening in karloff's performance and bogdanovich gets you know in just with the right frame and the right movement he really just sinks you into that sadness and then you contrast that with the bobby thompson story which is just absolute fucking like psycho shit oh Uh, well i think the way he connects the stories uh is so genius it's like it's never too showy, but it's always a clever way to link uh, between. It, it's almost never just like basic intercutting. It's always these, you know, 10, almost sometimes 15 minute chunks of each story. But then you get something as genius as Boris Karloff uh, saying, make way for the young. Uh, and then you cut to another angle of him in the sniper scope. And that's right. Bobby just, buying yeah. a new rifle. And then there's other ones where it's like, uh, he pans from left to right away from Bogdanovich and Karloff and yes. into a wall. And then he just continues the pan. And every single time you get these strange transitions that don't call all that much attention to themselves, but it's always a clever way until the story's conversion, the third act. And then he can just cut like nothing between the two stories because they are in the same location. Mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. love yeah the that, that pan is sick when when it's panning across him alone looking at his dinner and then it pans mm. to Bobby alone in, in the house of his with his parents and stuff like that it's great I also love the way that they portray Bobby because um, as like absolutely dead-eyed and insane as he kind of does look throughout it because he just has this almost like it's it's a it's a it's like a positive kind of attitude he seems to have but it's still very uh, deadened like it doesn't seem like he's expressing mm. himself all that much but there's still you know normal interactions like when he's buying the the guns and the ammo for instance he's got like a chocolate bar in his hand and he's just eating it nonchalantly and it just feels very much like a like a almost like a kid picking up candy from a store or something like that and yeah. uh and i also like that one of the connections is the television i i sorry to, mm-hmm. I, I just remembered that like because in Bobby's house, you don't even see what's on the screen. You hear like advertisements for yeah. a car dealership, which that's made a big deal of is like how this whole town is just car dealerships now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you also like hear them watch a late night show, but then the cut is to them watching the criminal code in Boris Karloff's place. And it's like Bogdanovich is like the images that these normies uh, watch on their television sets aren't dignified enough to show in the cinema because it's just commercial. But we'll, right. we'll, we'll let you watch a little bit of the criminal code. Yeah. Well, and 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 we should also say that too that it's it's a really interesting decision to make that the entire soundscape of the film. There's no music mm. in this film. Yes. All yeah. of the um all of these sounds are the radio advertisements or the uh you know sort of like the pop music that's playing on the radio stations and obviously I like this that it's like was re- remarked upon because it was an obvious influence on all those scenes of Brad Pitt driving around L.A. and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I love that it's um that he's driving also he's 
driving the like the American Mustang car, you know, the convertible, the white convertible, and then oh, he's yeah. listening to like American classic rock and roll as he's doing it, and that's the only music <laughs> that you get, and it's Bobby listening to it. So he has this image of like you know American freedom and the dream and all that. You know, he's driving the convertible. He, he's he's got the blonde hair. You know, he's young. He's looking good. Whatever. Uh, but well, yeah, we he, know he, he's he, on he his looks way like the kind of kid. People. So it's just like yeah. it's a completely. <laughs> It's a very disturbing uh, image that sh- is normally represented as like this, you know, image of freedom and and that kind of thing. Yeah, and this, and this actor Tim O'Kelly, he looks like the kind of kid that would have played like the young cowboy character yes, in like a fifties western. For sure, I was surprised <laughs> to see that this also, was his only movie. I was like, oh my god, this is the yeah. only thing I could see from him. So yeah, M- more than that, he looks like the kid who would be sitting in the front row at a fifties western. You know, <laughs> yeah. he just looks like yeah. the kid. Who is glued to the TV set? Not even the Western movies. He's watching the Western serials where they just kill the Indians every week. You know, like he yeah. is just glued to the American psyche. Uh, and I also love the landscapes that he's driving through because you have these yeah. highways, uh, the freeways rather. Uh, and this is a very local film to me. I grew up in the neighborhood where this was filmed, uh, and I still live in that neighborhood. Uh, the Reseda Drive-in is something that I wish still existed. Uh, but it's very undeveloped. Someone on Twitter brought this up to me and I thought about that. And it's very funny because they talk about how like this all, it's all just car dealerships now, but really this land was like undeveloped, you know, partial farmland. And a lot of it was used by the movie studios since this neighbor, all these neighborhoods are like, you know, five, 10 miles North of Hollywood. Uh, that that's where a lot of the fake movie ranches were, you know? So really what they're mourning, is just that this useless land uh, or previously useless land isn't a fake ranch anymore and now it's like <laughs> industry and apartments and stuff like that mm-hmm. I, I, I do like that he drives past that drive in a couple times which is also sort of a way that connects to the Karloff story because it's where they're going to pre premiering his film mm-hmm. the terror the next night and obviously he decides that you know he's not he doesn't want to be a part of the premiere anymore where he's invited to you know stand up there and po- possibly do like some sort of q a or something like that like at the drive-in premiere and there's a couple times where you see him driving by it and just looking at the sign and it it, it gives obviously the story some idea of connecting the two stories but also that mm-hmm. the story is being sort of like taking place in kind of our world like the fact that he's going to what basically is a Roger Corman movie starring Boris Karloff. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's driving by the ads for it and everything like that, you know, while again, he's on his way to kill people. And we should get into the sequences that Bogdanovich shoots here. Like, for example, like, you know, like the, the very first sequence where, uh, you know, it, it's kind of hinted at earlier where he goes target shooting with his dad and his dad's putting up the cans and he just instinctively aims down sight at him. And there's this great <laughs> POV shot of the barrel in the middle of the frame. And his dad, dad shows, Hey, that's how accidents happen. Doing? Sonny boy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a- after we get a couple scenes of him living with his parents and, you know, he's kind of talking, you know, uh, I think he tries to talk to his wife, Eileen, who is living and, and does sort of like a like a, you know, a, a late night job before she leaves. But before she leaves, before he goes on his killing spree, he, he sort of uh, he does that taxi driver line. The I get I get funny ideas, you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Um and, and it's much the first like Taxi Driver, that, like, you have that reveal, kind of like when Travis goes to buy the guns in that movie. Uh, but in this one, it's like it's all legit. He's buying them at hunting stores, and that reveal with his is dad's credit too. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, the reveal is just his trunk. Like, oh yeah, he's already been stocking up on hunting rifles and pistols for like so long now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I love too that, again, the way, the, the fact that Bogdanovich shoots this without um, music means that it's a lot of sequences of him uh, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that they are like full out procedural, but they, but they stick with him. Like, like when, yeah. when he buys those guns and he puts them in the back of the car, he drives to the house and he walks up to the front of the house and he enters the house and he's like, welcome home. We're going to have dinner. Like we're going to talk. We're going to have this great family get together. And it's this, you know, we follow him in like a tracking shot approaching the house. And we replicate that shot later when he goes out to the car to get the guns and he opens mm. the trunk and grabs the guns and then brings them inside and then the next morning, you know, he just he just goes off. That he just sh- uh, yeah. That shot of when the wife comes in, like slowly walks towards him, and they decide uh, Bogdanovich decides to uh, or Bogdanovich decides to have the shot be them getting very close to each other's lips as the morning kiss, and that's when he decides to shoot her in the stomach. Like it's just so cold and cruel. The way that he does and it. that close-up of the typewriter typing die, die. right before yeah. too yeah for real <laughs> and just that note itself oh like God. the 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 straightforward to the point way that it's written it's just like i'm going to kill my family there will be many others that are going to die uh that's you know that's it like it's just like to the yeah, point it, it's, it's i i know they will get me but they will there will be more killing before i die yeah, just <laughs> straight to the facts of what he's going to do there's nothing like combined, there's no motivation or anything it's just something that's inside him it's very frightening com- combined and I love with how, obviously the very blunt and sudden and ugly way that bogdanovich shoots that violence like it's oh, just yeah. very they're they're in this house where there were these sort of you know sort of like cartoonishly domestic scenes taking place mm-hmm. and then bam shot in the gut and then he walks out and he's just executing his mother in the kitchen yep. and the grocery boy <laughs> yeah and honest honestly i i ended up reading up that apparently there is a, a lot of writing in this that was actually sam fuller and this was the one part in the movie that kind of reminded <laughs> me of something that you would see in a sam oh, fuller yeah, movie for sure <laughs> Definitely. especially like that tracking shot out of like pure efficiency through the hallways there you know it's like never a showy one it's like i don't know why the adjective that always comes to mind for sam fuller's tracking shots are like punchy like it's like Mm -hmm. uh it's always just like a violent thing that the camera has to go rush and check out real quick and then Uh, it's never like look how cool this camera move is Uh, but it's always like the most effective way possible to showcase the violence and then after that that violence like where the bodies are just kind of like laying there or I guess he does start to drag them and put them somewhere. I can't remember where Yeah, and Bogdanovich does his own creepy version on the psycho murder cleanup where he's just right, picking yeah. up the bodies in and silence. He's using and the blue paper towels from the sixties or whatever. It's just, I don't know why that's an added <laughs> yes. touch for me, but it is. Um, but, but, yeah. but the camera, oh, like yeah, going no, I love through how the he whole house, up the towels and everything. <laughs> yeah. And it goes through the entire house and then goes to the, to the note, but it's just, he actually lingers in that home for a long time. And once again, there's no music. So you're just sitting there in the empty quietness of this, this house that just had murder, you know, go yeah, that, that, it, that so. used to have, you know, that this family all listening to the television right, and having praying dinner. and yeah. talking about, you know, their days at work and everything like that. And then just suddenly it's this camera just tracking over these corpses that are being dragged across like the bloody floors and stuff yeah, like that. So and that's the brutal. beginning of his killing spree. Right. <laughs> yeah, like the just, next sequence is him getting in it. the. 
Yeah, getting in the, the car the and just, tanker. you know, driving down the freeway <laughs> with all the ammunition he's got loaded up in his car, setting up in the little sniper perch on top of what's, uh, I'm assuming that's like some sort of water tower or something. Yeah. And no, it shows- that, that's like an oil tanker. Oh, okay. it, it's oh, like owned oil. by Chevron. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's just, yeah, that's where the trucks get all the gas and bring to the gas station. And it shows uh, and every like bit that of- land is kind of undeveloped still at that point. And now it's just like full city, you know, that, that freeway, you just are driving over buildings and apartments and stuff like that. Uh, but he fully just goes GTA mode on top of that <laughs> oil tanker where he just sets up. He's got his snacks. He's got his Pepsi uh, and he's got his uh, 35 odd, whatever rifle. And he's just fucking sniping people as they drive by watching people react uh, you know, watching a lady get out of the car, run a little bit and then sniping her just hilarious. Honestly, it's, <laughs> it's brutal. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, and I love like the fact that he, he sets up uh, or, or he shoots the entire preparation, like him driving him going all the way up, then him taking out all of the weapons. And he's got like six different rifles and he lays out all his different pistols. <laughs> and then the last thing he put, takes out is that cold Pepsi. It's just like the finishing American <laughs> touch. It's, it's brilliant. Really? Yeah, man, he's got, he's, he's, he's gotta be, uh, he's gotta have his thirst quenched <laughs> while he's just gunning people down at random. And, and, and Bogdanovich too shoots it with a great combination of kind of like these, these really terrifying low angle shots of him, but then followed by the POV shots of, of the scope and the shots mm. that he's taking. And then these wides also of the entire area that capture, you know, sort of how far he is from the highway as he's taking these shots. And I love too, that the way that, because he's picking off moving drivers it takes so long and a horrifyingly tense amount of time for people to start realizing like what it is that's that's actually taking place because he's essentially looking he's he's hitting them like uh like you're watching the jfk assassination footage yeah like there's just the cars (laughs) driving by he just hits a passenger in the car and the car just keeps moving. And you never and then, get a camera angle that's with those people, which is very interesting. It's always his, like what the, what he would see. Yeah. So you only really get like, let's say somebody was shot. You, you see very often the distance, maybe like a panic or someone falling onto the side of the car or something like that. But you never yeah. get like their actual screams or reactions close up. So you only get to see what he's seeing. And that's also very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, I love it's how Bogdanovich shoots the guy oh, who is going to come like uh, fuck with Bobby, uh, who's working at this oil tanker, you know, the security guard or whatever, uh, because it's like, you know, a hero's call. You see him like looking at some fucking clipboard and then he looks up like, huh? You know, right. And uh, yeah. we get this tracking shot from behind him kind of mimicking what Bobby did. You get the same angle of him walking up the stairs. And I, I think that repetition of the shot of the staircase, whether it's, you know, Bobby walking up with his, you know, bag of rifles or this guy unarmed trying to take him down for whatever reason, uh, because he he hears that it's gunfire. I don't know what this dumbass thinks he's going to do. <laughs> unarmed, uh, But, you know, he gets got like you would think, uh, but Bobby gets so nervous. And I love the very quick insert shots of, you know, ammunition or pistols uh, or food or whatever, like falling from Bobby's hands or off the tower or falling mm-hmm. into puddles and stuff like that. I think it's those little moments that punctuate the scene uh, so well uh, that Bogdanovich uses. And it's like, he does use quite a few long t- 
takes here, but I think those insert shots are, are what really uh, help build suspense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there, there's, there, there's also an energy to the shots that he's taking because they're from his specific point of view that they're shooting it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if you knew this, Eddie, but they, they actually shot all of that without permits. Oh, oh really? nice. Wow. So, so yeah, they, <laughs> so, so, ba- I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, so Bogdanovich had walkie talkies to communicate with the, with the, uh, crew that was on the freeway telling them when to act like they were shot, but all of the <laughs> other cars who weren't cast members pretending to get shot were just real cars on the freeway. And so he had to shoot with multiple cameras. Uh, one was hit with a wide angle lens, one had a telephoto lens. And that's what those inserts are. Yeah. Um, are all of these shots of them trying to get these shots before they essentially think that they're going to, you know, get the cops called on them or something. And the cops were called on them when they got to the part where, um, he shoots the girl outside the car who's running away. Yeah. Cause someone saw her fall and look like she got shot and someone called, called the cops. And apparently they shut down the, the crew and they just pieced out before the cops even got there. <laughs> so they did what they Bobby so did. <laughs> Yeah, That's exactly. Incredible. Like, I, like essentially the filmmaking conditions were the exact same experience as Bobby's point of view in the sequence, That's which is kind of That's amazing. That's what I always admired about this film is like, uh, just as pure inspiration for me. Like I, you know, growing up in this area and reading about Bogdanovich living in this area and even naming his production company, Sadikoy Productions. Like, Hey, I go to the Seven Eleven on Sadikoy like every fucking day, you know? Uh, and he's <laughs> shooting all these locations on the fly and making this fucking, you know, eternal classic out of these exploitation conditions uh, and kind of marking this area local area you know in history in its current state of development in 1968 uh, i think just adds a whole nother layer of beauty and history to this film Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm, definitely mm -hmm. and uh before we do move on from from this scene um unless you guys did have more more things i just wanted to include i love that after he drinks the pepsi like he does the big pepsi chug he tosses it and the moment that it smashes Mm. to the ground he cocks the gun and starts and it's i don't know there's this thing where it's like (laughs) you know like lunch is over i've been fueled here we go and it's (laughs) it's so fucking dark and very uh it's it's like pretty quick edited too quickly edited so it's pretty fast-paced it's uh so i just wanted to mention that that was a a cool little touch yeah well after that sequence he decides that he, uh, running from the cops, f- leaving that sequence, he decides that he is going to Thunderbolt and Lightfoot style. He's going to post up at the drive-in to uh, <laughs> try try and avoid uh, these people out hunting for him. And this is where it gets uh, even like crazier in terms of what Bogdanovich is doing with some of the images. And we kind of brought it up when we did our episode with Violet Luca where we talked about anguish. Uh, right. Because this is very sort of similar idea to what anguish um, is is doing, even though anguish, you know, kind of in, in includes a more metaphorical device of them watching a movie about a guy who's killing people in a theater while they're being killed off in a theater. But Bogdanovich actually beat them to this idea where they go to the drive-in premiere of the terror of Karloff's new horror film. He goes. He posts up inside the screen poking his sniper literally through the Karloff image on the screen that shot is and so just starts good. <laughs> and just, just the gun starts barrel going into the screen people off yeah. one by one and all those great shots of kind of like 
all the cars just like pulling up to the drive-in for a night out. There's these great sort of like loving shots that reminded me of some of the the analog fetish stuff that you see in like Blowout, uh, oh, where yeah. the when projectionist is just setting up the reels. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, like it, 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 it's very clearly just you know like it, there's there's this love for the mechanical process of putting on the picture show taking place in this drive-in sequence before it is literally interrupted by this you know this nihilistic violence and well exactly it's a love for it but it's also like an elegiac thing of like this is kind of where the good movies go to die like you look at something Mm -hmm. like uh the other side of the wind or even uh once upon a time in hollywood they both have the drive-in as this signifier kind of of like you know the 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 tides are turning in movie culture uh but you know because once upon a time in hollywood at least for me is kind of about how guys like brad pitt were kind of the backbone like that is how the machine kept rolling was those kind of guys you know uh, or at least that's one of the things that you, that you take away from it and mm-hmm. the other side and he you know literally lives behind a drive-in as cinema is dying and the other side of the wind uh ends on uh the same shot that this one ends on not to get too ahead of ourselves but the empty drive-in with the light of day coming up you know uh and that image of kind of cinema's death there uh is just so harrowing and incredible and i think yeah well donovich absolutely knows what he's doing with that like it's it's such a crazy uh signifier the drive-in well and, and and to so viscerally um you know sort of depict that as well with watching all of these sort of like you know these smiling faces with their snacks engaging with like this older form of film on the screen while the more modern exploitation version literally prepares to kill them in the background (laughs) and and like that is like like yeah, like that, like the, the source of sort of like tension and, and atmosphere that Bogdanovich builds is literally built into, you know, those images, the slow pan moving up and down inside the screen as the gunman, you know, starts sticking the gun barrel through the screen yeah. and you see the image projected on the gun barrel and stuff like that. Like it's. It's obviously very obvious, but it's really, really effectively done and doesn't at all sacrifice, you know, like the thriller aspect of the scene that's taking place to get that across. I also like Um, that he shows how small like the actual hole is like he shows him on the platform and then he puts the, the, the barrel through the hole and then he does a wide shot of the entire screen just so that you can get the perspective of the audience. And, you know, the screen is pretty much just entirely full. So they have no idea. And it just adds that extra layer, too, of the uh, just, you know, something's about to happen. Nobody knows. And it's going to be an incredibly (laughs) violent, horrible event. Uh, So that I really liked how he just kind of set those shots up. To, uh, yeah, when, to the when, when, when he starts executing people in the cars, and you're starting to watch oh, like yeah. the lights go out in in the cars, it's their only and things like that. That's the scariest part is when like when they get shot, and the the one family, the wife is just like, just turn the lights off. Like that's the only thing that we can do so that they can't see us at least. Like that's a very scary yeah. thing. Yeah. And then also the communication that they that the drivers start to kind of have with one another, but but. And mm-hmm. we sp- we spoke about the last shot where it, it reveals just like also how big that parking lot was. So when they start communicating mm-hmm. uh, with each other that something's going on, there's a shooter. 
uh, very yeah, few it's, it's people. a very slow moving form exactly. of communication exactly. at the yeah. drive-in, right? Because then they just start like <laughs> honking. Like so, there's like one section of people honking at each other. The others don't know what's going on. There's a lot of confusion. So I really like that too. That he focused a little bit on the like the communication that the audience members would have to to go through in order to get out of there. Well, yeah, yeah and, and Karloff and sitting there in too. his car just yeah. thinking like, <laughs> right. oh, God, everyone hates it's this my movie. movie. Yeah, they're all leaving. leaving. <laughs> yeah, I love, I, I love that bit because because before they start freaking out, he's just like, it's strange to like not hear any sort of like audience reaction, right? right. Because again, oh, yeah, he's used too. to like, he's, he, he's, he's used to having people sit in a theater when he shows up to his premiere, but his new premiere for his new film is at the drive-in. And then, yeah, then the cars start actually like leaving and honking and freaking out. And he's just like, damn, I, I, they must really not have responded to this movie. <laughs> yeah. I guess I uh, think once the horns start honking, this completely kicks it into next gear and is like from here on out, just pure fucking cinema as good as it gets, because you have like, this death of, you know, this classic cinema, this idea we've been working at this whole time where we see, you know, an icon as uh, iconic as anyone else from the thirties, but you know, fucking mm-hmm. Boris Karloff, like the universal mo- monster cycle. Come on. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and you just have all these horns honking and people leaving a movie and you have Peter Bogdanovich walking through this crowd of people getting shot at, not realizing what's going on this flood of lights all over. It's completely abstracted. Uh, It actually reminded me quite a bit of Michelangelo Antonioni uh, to bring back a thread from the beginning, uh, just in that way that it's just like this pure situation of composition, movement, and abstract sound and a character moving through it. Uh, But Bogdanovich doesn't let you get that navel-gazy because then he also gets the super Corman exploitation uh, good old American boys together and this like fucking militia forms <laughs> yes. in the drive-in. You get these five dudes. They that have their guns ready. Their fucking guns. Yeah, they just fucking <laughs> brought their pistols to the drive-in. I was like, just right, gonna mention that. It's the most American thing ever. I loved it. Like the the full front row just had dads like with gats ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well, yeah, funny, because, man. Because like Bobby's not an anachronism here. Like uh, you know, there are like the progressive or not his progressive, dad is one there's of those the guys liberal hippies yeah there's the liberal yeah. hippies and stuff but there there's a lot of good old american boys too like, that's right that's right <laughs> and i guess that's what uh, yeah, I, propels it to that to the moment that uh that karloff gets right because then he says to start kind of shooting yeah. out with people and then that's when boris approaches well it- I, I also love that Bogdanovich highlights that moment too, because a, a huge part of how he's been able to do this is that he's been able to just walk into a store and go get the guns right. because it's something yeah. him and his dad do together. Right. There is like a scene that there's a tiny bit of tension when, you know, he's like, put it on my dad's bill. And he thinks that the guy is going to like actually call his dad, but his dad doesn't because there's a level of trust yep. in, yeah. you know, the sort of community of, of sort of, you know, uh, people who are very passionate about guns. And so to have yeah. all of those guys also just all be at the drive-in at the same time, like it's it's just a version of his family you know mm-hmm. his dad if, if yeah. his dad took him to the drive-in his dad would probably have been the exact same one of those guys <laughs> oh, Definitely. absolutely um, his dad would have fucking shot at the screen when he saw the <laughs> out. and then yeah karloff man walking towards the screen oh, like towards the best flashing the between shot of the movie badass yeah the, and it's really cutting a three very three-way fast money bet- shot yeah 
It's the yeah. three shots, the the image of Karloff on the screen, that beautiful image of Karloff walking toward the camera uh, in long shot with like lit by the reflection of the drive-in screen and just the terrified Bobby not knowing what's going on as movies become reality. And he shoots first at Karloff. He misses, so he shoots at the fucking movie screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude, he's he's lost it. Like both, both, both have become one and the same for him. This real life Karloff and the movie Karloff, um, and also the fact that he knows him. Like he, when he aims mm. that sniper at him earlier, he brags to the family about how he saw Orlock, who is yeah, the, yeah. the character that he's playing in the film. And I, and I like so it's a guy that he knows. So, so I like that it, he thinks he's fantasizing, right? I, and I like that it gives Karloff like that that kind of. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it like retribution or anything like that, but it, it's like that that feeling he's had the whole time where, you know, his version of horror movies and, you know, his uh, his persona of that horror icon is kind of dwindling. And now he's literally walking towards the mass murdering like horror icon of today and, you know, hitting him with the cane kind of punching him out, <laughs> slapping him in the face. Yeah. And, and he's so scared of uh, uh, Bobby, that is. Face, that is just old oh, guy's yeah, rule. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and Bobby's so scared that he's, you know, shooting at Boris and then shooting back at the screen. So it's kind of justified. He, he could probably feel justified that he's like, that fear came back. <laughs> you know, like my, yeah. my iconic horror uh, persona is back, baby. They're scared again. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, th- then he looks at the disarmed, you know, scared little anonymous boy and he goes is that what i was afraid of yeah in the newspaper headlines is that that sinking feeling that this thing that i was terrified of was just you know something so you know on the surface kind of normal and all you're kind of left with there is kind of like the 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 confusion of kind of that moment yeah um and you know the the implication of you know once again that bogdanovich has turned that fear into you know a kind of his own horror movie that that we're watching take place here and that moment kind of rings with the story that he tells earlier in the film too where mm-hmm. he talks about this guy who runs into death in a marketplace and death gives him this like odd look and it freaks the guy out and he's so frightened he steals a horse and he travels to samara or whatever from baghdad and then uh, a pair, the guy goes and talks to death later and tells him that he didn't make any sort of strange look or threat at his friend, that death was just surprised to see him because he had an appointment later with him in Samara. Uh, <laughs> and so I love it's, how it's, it's that this... scene is played so classic. Like he, he starts it in the wide shot. I think there's like five people in the room and it's the wide yes. shot that just slowly pushes in on Karloff over that like four Yeah, he totally story. gives him a 1930s storytelling moment and yeah, it's so effective because awesome. Karloff used to do that all the time. So it's, it's obviously a great little nostalgia thing that he does and Karloff is just again a great reader of stories so the story when he tells it is a lot more impactful but then also the story being one of about a guy who was so afraid and you know afraid of what essentially was this kind of predetermined violence that he will never actually understand in any kind of meaningful way and that's mm-hmm. the exact same feeling that Karloff is kind of left with when when this kid goes down because obviously he takes the kid down technically that should yeah. be you know sort of happy ending but it's it, it doesn't really feel that <laughs> and way also if, if looking you, you're, at you're, a young 20 year old that just did this act too must be something for for his character I think and just in general just mm-hmm. because I mean you're watching somebody that's you know he, he's a he's a young adult by all means, he was probably going to be successfully at a family, all that stuff. And Karloff's just looking at him like, like this is, 
it's, there, there's nothing but sadness here. That's just uh, yeah. definitely yeah. Well, and then and then all those sirens and darkness that Bogdanovich kind of ends on in that final confrontation, just giving way to that big wide of the daylight drive-in with the lone car and, in it as the credits go, and it's complete silence. Yeah, and Bobby uh, saying the last line of the movie is something like, uh, "I hardly ever missed." Like with a really positive <laughs> inflection in his voice, like he's very proud of himself. Is uh, he did a terrifying, good job? <laughs> yeah, terrifying stuff. Uh, but yeah, that ending shot with the with the empty uh, parking lot and just Bobby's Mustang in the middle of it, just the lone car in the lot, like the last thing that that you know that lot's gonna remember, kind of thing. It's just mm-hmm. it's a pretty devastating image. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, pivoting towards, I think, the uh, reductive rating round um, on this one. Uh, this one uh, gets the five for me. Uh, oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, this this one, um, when I first watched it, really, really blew me away. I was surprised I hadn't actually heard kind of like more about it, um, honestly. So I'm hoping anyone who hasn't given it a chance listening to the show would definitely go and go and check it out. But as I said at the uh, beginning and we kind of you know covered it kind of beat by beat there but like I think this is just a really amazing movie sort of uh, self-reflexive kind of film that Bogdanovich has turned again his production limitations into something that is actually you know relevant to what he's saying about you know sort of like the history of film and taking this old Hollywood actor from the 1930s who came from an era of, of horror movies that was all gothic castles and spooky stories and updated it for what if that actor had lived long enough and become an old man and seen the way that the industry had changed and how, you know, they made exploitation movies now. They made Corman movies and how, you know, they might make a Corman movie, say, out of, you know, mass shootings, out of, you know, uh, a, a time in America when a lone gunman could just occupy a tower for a few hours and just kill dozens of people for no reason. And Bogdanovich's camera absolutely captures the, um, you know, both the the vast difference between these two parallel stories, but when they converge, he very expertly converges them together, and you 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 really do get those feelings um, as you know you're watching that gun stick through the movie screen. You're watching the gunman literally lose track between the real Korloff and the and uh, the movie Karloff, yeah. and. Uh, Again, also just very, very creepy little thriller completely on its own. Even if, you know, you don't completely sink into Bogdanovich's, um, you know, ideas about movies in this, he is very much, it's just a very creepy little horror story at the same time of this kid just on the surface, a clean cut uh, insurance guy (laughs) (laughs) who just goes on a absolutely terrifying killing spree with all again sort of like the sudden and blunt and ugly violence that kind of comes with that and then watching an old actor you know basically play himself reacting to this new world you know sort of you know 40 years later uh it's it's a really really amazing piece of filmmaking Mm -hmm. i think so yeah Yeah. five i'm i'm also gonna give it a five uh don't have too much uh to add but i just i just love the idea of using karloff as like this this character to express the transition from the classic old horror and thriller hollywood to this to the to the new stuff we see today that's just so full of sickos and uh we do love it on the show but (laughs) it's uh it's it's very interesting to use karloff as as kind of the uh the character to represent that. So that was, that was awesome. Um, 
Yeah, I, and I, I am very surprised to, once again to, to see that the guy that played Bobby wasn't in anything else because he does kind of have that kind of uh, classic leading man uh, look to him. I'm not sure about the the performance if he were to have another shot but because uh, he's very kind of dead-eyed in this. But it's uh, I just found it interesting that he didn't have anything else. I would have been interested to see him in like a Western or something. But, uh, but yeah, five, five out of five, uh, masterpiece. This thing is unbelievable. For you, Eddie. All right. Well, I, I think to contrast what you guys said, I think like as much as he is commenting on this exploitation style of filmmaking that he even mm-hmm. has to go through working for Corman, I feel like this is just as much about uh, his resistance to uh, kind of his compatriots in New Hollywood. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of the the Hollywood Renaissance directors, Bogdanovich kind of wanted New Hollywood to be Hollywood 2.0, you know, like all the great mm-hmm. movies had been made. He, he right. wouldn't dare attempt genre revisionism to the extent of Altman because he respected the classics. And this is a film of a student of the game. He is a Saris like auteurist who rightfully dreaded this new wave of filmmakers who would rewrite John Ford or Howard Hawks without even understanding the movies. So what he does Mm -hmm. is he, he self inserts as like a savior of historically great cinema uh, while also taking cues from his idols and, you know, also giving us this clockwork like precise slow burn thriller on the other end end of it and it's this dialectic of like self-conscious new hollywood tendencies and his utter devotion to just making a good old genre movie that makes this such a unique entry in the new hollywood canon and so it's an easy Mm -hmm. five for me and just like one of the most interesting movies ever yeah absolutely yeah and, and 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 how easy he makes that you know that combination of the two seem uh, because yeah. it's it's something that you know it, it it does feel like it it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it it just does. Yep. Um, really, really taken with it. All right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for uh, targets. We are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about next. Hi, mom! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Let's go. And we're both drained. And, uh, Would you wait about twenty five minutes? are a pillar in the system that is oppressing the black people and all the poor people in the world, no matter what color they are. I don't know what I'm talking about. Isn't that great? You know, tragedy is a, it's a funny thing. All right, we are back, and we are talking Hi, Mom, the 1970 uh, American black comedy film, uh, as listed here, directed by uh, Brian De Palma, and also, uh, I believe, the the second film of a little actor called uh, Robert De Niro, <laughs> uh, a, a, a quasi-sequel to his first uh, film with Brian De Palma, Greetings, and uh, yeah, I use sequel very, very loosely because essentially he's yeah. just playing the, he, he's essentially just playing the same character. Greetings is kind of like this, this more sort of like walking around uh, the city uh, kind of comedy about a bunch of friends who are dodging the draft to Vietnam. Okay, and so he's uh, he's he's re coming back in as the character he played in that film, but uh, playing him post 
Vietnam uh, after yeah, he well, has returned to New ends, York. Greetings ends, if you'll remember, with an ending similar to Hi Mom, uh, where he's talking to a news reporter, uh, but from Vietnam, from the action, and he basically just says, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> uh, but just to correct you real quick not to De Palma Splain uh, but it's actually oh. his third movie and uh, De Niro's third as well uh, oh. it, it was a delayed release though the first one they did The Wedding Party what? Uh, the, the Wedding one, Party? The, the, the Wedding that Party was, That was the out, first one uh, they made it was released way after though that was the first one they made interesting yeah. Damn. And it it's kind of unfortunate because the wedding party the wedding is party like one of my <laughs> my my least favorite De Palmas, I think. Yeah, uh, that movie yeah, is that's awful. But it's a it's like <laughs> it's more of a it's more of a collab with like his Sarah Lawrence buddies. Uh, whereas yeah. Greetings and Hi Mom, like there's still a collab with that one writer producer, but it's so much more of a De Palma film. Whereas, yeah, the wedding party feels like a Sarah Lawrence art project that De Palma had a hand in. You know. Yeah, De, De Palma and, and Hirsch, I think, shared equal writing credit on, mm. on Hi Mom for this one. Because, yeah, it's yeah. his buddy Charles Hirsch. And both of them, you know, they were kind of just students uh, in the anti-war movement, kind of just like fucking around. And they had a they had a, an, an interest in, you know, you know, sort of like what what films can say and do in moments of sort of, you know, societal upheaval, like in this time, it basically takes like the, the, the premise. It's funny. Cause this movie, if you describe it to someone, uh, you know, it's a, it's about a Vietnam vet who returns to New York and he gets involved in, you know, a v- various underground social movements. One of them sort of being peep art. Um, you get this idea that this should be one of De Palma's most Hitchcockian movies. It's essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, John Rubin, uh, who Robert De Niro is playing, you know, he starts off by kind of, you know, pitching this idea of rear window, but <laughs> pornographic. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you would think that that would translate into something Hitchcockian, but what's was interesting is, as Eddie kind of mentioned, that he actually turns it into something that is more of kind of like this radical guerrilla filmmaking, this sort mm-hmm. of like countercultural comedy about making peep art and the ideas of sort of like cameras and televisions as uh, the ultimate peep art and cameras and televisions being everywhere. Cameras shooting the war, people watching, you know, all these lives taking place on their television screens, including things um, like the war kind of like at a distance. And uh, it's a precursor too for De Niro for both, uh, not just Travis Bickle, who he gets a lot of comparisons in here too, just because he's a, you know, he, he wears the jacket. He comes back from Vietnam. He kind of goes a little, he, he, he gets a little, uh, antisocial and strange and he gets involved in all this all this weird stuff what's interesting is that I would say on like a like a moment to moment character level he actually reminds me more of uh, Rupert Pumpkin the king of comedy version of this oh, character absolutely. yeah for sure I see that 100% where, where he's, he's constantly putting on you know like this kind of uh, performance that he's playing um, in this sort of America that he comes back to and you, you kind of get this feeling that he doesn't have a sincere interaction with anyone in this entire movie. He doesn't, no. Um, he, uh, he, he just kind of has some, some strange ideas and he kind of pursues these movements because he kind of is interested in kind of the artistic thrill, but he's also in some ways less expressed than say it is in Taxi Driver. There is a little bit of anger to his character, like in the opening scene when he comes back from the war and he's, you know, he, he's, uh, uh, talking to 
this landlord who's just digging through the trash behind the building and he's inquiring about this rundown apartment that has no working door it's completely filthy it's got like cat litter and shit in it and you're getting his point Um, of view which is very interesting too and they do like yeah, these, like, yeah, the, 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 the structural approach there. Like there, oh, there are yeah. so many scenes that take a very detached stylistic approach. This one being an entirely point of view, uh, handheld shot that's broken up with Godardian jump cuts. Right. Uh, yeah, but I think that yeah. distancing effect does such a great job because yeah, Josh, you're right in like assuming that it would be more Hitchcockian. Oh shit. Uh, uh, hey, are you guys there? I just got disconnected. Yeah, it's okay, Joe. Just start at uh, when you said, I think that distancing effect. Yeah, I think okay. we're all uh, I, good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it... So he uses these Godardian jump cuts instead and each scene, you know, has this kind of distancing effect. And Josh, you were right in what you were saying about how you would think it's more Hitchcock, uh, but then it's not because of the approach. And it's kind of this balance that I think De Palma has to strike throughout his whole career of being part Hitchcock and you could say part Godard, but I think more than anything, it's just like taking from the same people Godard took from part Brecht uh, more than anything else. And you're using Mm -hmm. this distancing effect to make the audience aware of the social ramifications of the situations he's uh, showing you and why he's making the aesthetic choices that he's making. So, you know, a long time ago, I wrote a very bad uh, college essay about this and body double, but I think they share a link of being kind of on the other ends of the spectrum there uh, because body double is him at one of his most Hitchcockian. Uh, He's fully just leaning into the voyeurism. It's the cinema of looking at women and doing following tracking shots uh, and also like wrong man thriller stuff as well. Uh, But he is using that Brechtian detachment uh, to show you the links between genre cinema, pornography and popular culture of the 1980s. And here he's doing that uh, with like underground guerrilla movements and underground film movements and stuff like that. And the, the uh, inefficient of the counterculture uh and it's really just a genius film for that uh, aspect and i think it's great for showing anyone who thinks de palma does make dumb sleazy movies how smart he is and how much he is intellectualizing all these decisions that he makes even in his sleaziest movies Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we will say this. Go, this goes to uh, this does have one of De Palma's most notorious sequences in it, which we will get to. That is that is definitely you know meant to be uh, an, an early kind of you know student provocation kind of thing. But he yeah. is doing things more um, interesting, especially if you go and you kind of like read up on the film a little bit too, because. Um, I went and found it because I saw, I think it was Hirsch in an interview was talking about it. And I was very curious about what he was referring to, but the, the opening scene where he's talking to, uh, the landlord about the rundown apartment and the landlord's trying to like overcharge him $75 for it or whatever, because it's, you know, it's got like filthy mattresses. It's the doors mm-hmm. are breaking off. The fridge is broken and it, it cuts it. The only time oh. it breaks the POV shot of De Niro holding the camera at the landlord is a close up of De Niro's face. Just smiling going i'll take it and you're kind <laughs> yeah. of being like that is such a strange kind of positive reaction to the sequence that we've just been watching yeah. but it turns out that this this entire sequence is actually a parody 
of what was a public service announcement on television in New York at the time <laughs> by a group called the New York Urban Coalition in which a similarly slimy like landlord essentially showed this apartment to like a black man and the black man had to go be like, wow, this is great. I'll take it. <laughs> right. Oh my God. I love that. How uh, De Niro music. has to haggle with him too. He's like, uh, he's like, you said it was $45 a month, not 60. And the guy's like, well, I said it was 45. I didn't know there was all this great furniture in here. Yeah, <laughs> it's all just smashed just on the garbage. ground. Like- it's literally just an apartment filled with garbage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a perfectly good chair leg. I mean, I gotta, you know, you gotta spend another five bucks. I love how much detail there is in this. There's even the business card of the producer De Niro for his links up with that just says instant (laughs) and then dollar sign for erotic art. And that leads to one of my favorite comedic scenes in the De Palma filmography where De Niro is trying to grease the wheels of this porno producer to fund his peep art project. And they just hang out in a porno theater and uh, De Niro keeps looking at the bathroom and the guy's like, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what goes on in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like too that De Niro. The way that he captures De Niro, kind of getting this idea, is he you know because uh, he he's so, the, looking at the interior of the apartment is so horrible that he says, "But you got a great view." And he opens up the window, and he opens <laughs> up the window, and he sees all of the you know he sees the building next to them, the sort of nicer building with all these different things, and it it replicates that rear window shot of all the frames within frames of all these little mini kind of stories taking place yeah. inside them, like little TV screens, and there there's this very uh, upbeat little like almost like sitcom intro music oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah very sitcom where, yeah where he, yeah where he's talking about like recording all his dreams and peeping through window and seeing life on little screens and jamie i'm sure i'm sure the trailer will include like pieces of the music but if it doesn't yeah. you should insert one of the songs at at one point in here yeah there yeah, are a couple it, songs in this between the high mom intro and the the be black baby theme song that are just such quintessential works of like De Palma toying with TV music kind of, because uh, another thing that I think he's really kind of underheralded for is mixed media kind of stuff. Uh, Like when he shoots, uh, is it sisters that opens with a game show or is that Carrie? I forgot which one it was. Sorry, I, I'm totally I know what you're talking about. For some reason, I can't really De Palma knowledge right now. But regardless, uh-huh. uh, the NIT public service uh, TV show that is on this one, which is like national intellectual television, kind of a spoof of, you know, the highbrow efforts of national uh, television at the time. And also uh, like the the porno channel in Body Double to bring back that one. I think his yeah. dedication to, you know, separating film from TV and then in this one invoking TV <gasps> with music as well as uh, visual aesthetics is really genius. And also, I mean, those songs are just so fucking catchy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're 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 so good, and and the tone doesn't prepare you for you know some of the actual subject matter that that the film <laughs> is going to take because it because it because <laughs> it kind of has all. that kind of that 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 goofy <laughs> comedy to it. Even some of the way that he gauges the performances, like especially the porn producer, like he yeah. he 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 really nails. It made me you know because I mean I've seen the Wise Guys and I wasn't crazy about it, but it did make me wonder, you know, what a De Palma like full out comedy 
would look like the scenes with the with the porn producer when you know the, again there's the scene where they're where they're talking in the um the porno house where he's like look at that cleavage you don't get that in a fellini film <laughs> um and well i know you're not then, crazy but, about wise guys but that's also kind of an assignment movie and i think if uh, yeah. de palma like makes one of his auteur movies as a comedy that's yeah. a lot different like something like this or even his next one get to know your rabbit is a little more tame but it's a very goofy mm. comedy starring one of the smothers brothers and orson wells uh, in a supporting role as a magician yeah, i need to see that one yeah <laughs> that one is insane yeah, but I, I I love the conversations he has with that porn producer where he's like showing him the buildings because he's trying to pitch this porn producer on getting money for like a, a project. And he's like, why are you showing me real estate? You think this tall building is going to sell movies? I know about phallic symbols. Don't tell me about phallic symbols. <laughs> and then he just points uh, to some random guy in a porn store. He's like, see, this guy know what's up. He he. he <laughs> He's buying he a porno mag. Porn. He's like, he's, he's, he's like, come over here. Would you, would you buy this? If this was in a magazine, would you buy this shit? <laughs> um, but he, but he eventually also, does pitch the him on the idea of very, peep art. Oh, sorry. I just want to say about that scene. Uh, the dialogue throughout this is mainly improvised. Uh, they outlined scenes and improvised mainly. And I think that kind of comes from that, you know, theater troupe type uh, milieu that De Palma was working within. And you even get like, you get a little bit of that interactive theater later on with Bebop Baby. And one of his earlier films, if you can even call it a film, is Dionysus in 69, which is his split screen filmed performance of Dionysus with a lot, some of the same actors as this also. Uh, and I think hmm. that him just kind of poking fun of that theatrical milieu that he knows he's better than <laughs> is uh, a very fun thing about this movie. But he's also using that approach, that improv, that improv approach that those theater losers were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the way that he'll he'll cut them together, like the way that that conversation with the porn producer actually takes place over like three or four different locations. But it's a continuation of the conversation yeah. that they are they Which are so improvising. Awesome. And, he and, does that and with obviously the later on, too. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great little technique because it, it leads to some moments of kind of, you know, great comedy, like when he's still trying to pitch him, like he, he's bringing in his like art poster board for his pitch on the movie, but the guy can't even see it because it's being filled up in like the the steam shower room that they're in. Yeah, uh, so he literally just can't even him in a sauna and the producers are just like eating a roast beef sandwich in the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, well, so ridiculous. he he. he, he he eventually convinces him on the peep art. He gets the two thousand uh, dollars that he that he asks for to start filming, and he he sets up his camera across, and he's you know he's he's taking you know all these different um, little films on all the characters across the street, like in like in rear window, um, all seen sort of like through his lens. But he sees like a family shooting um, home videos. He sees like a, a photographer kind of having various women over and having relationships with them. Uh, but then he also sees this sort of like young radical NYU student uh, who keeps painting his entire body black <laughs> and his camera kind of keeps catching this guy. And he's kind of like, I don't really know like what's up with this guy. I'm kind of drawn to this guy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's like, this isn't really what I'm supposed to be filming. I'm supposed <laughs> to be trying to film, you know, sort of like little, little sexy shows. So eventually, you know, uh, you know, he, he's watching, uh, this sort of like lonely girl, 
in one of the windows and he imagines himself at one point sort of like joining her and bringing her flowers in. And it's really cool the way that De Palma films it because it's all these kind of like, uh, you know, from the point of view of what De Niro's character is shooting, but then he imagines himself shooting it also in the frame and his, his fantasies about, you know, just going over to the girl and sparking up a relationship, becoming part of the film that he's making start to infect like the real movie in a way. Mm-hmm. And at that point he just kind of goes bozo mode. He decides to like pretend to have some sort of like weird, like date set up. Yeah. Uh, th- this is weird, like, f- like early, like online dating version thing <laughs> yeah. where he's going to show up. And well, he maps this is yeah. also all from the greetings to the too. second. Oh, I, I just wanted to say the, the idea of the computer date, uh, one of the three buddies in greetings has a mishap with that. Uh, and so the fact that this is just something that these, you know, Hirsch and De Palma were just like, yeah, I guess this is just the future, man. You know, people are just going to be sociopaths who, you know, punch in their data to online things to get <laughs> dates with strangers. <laughs> but he fakes this. He he pretends that. He's yeah, he this fakes it, which is so date. interesting. And it's such a funny, psychotic way in where he walks the audience through it before by talking to himself. He's like, okay, it'll take me 26 minutes to seduce her and I'll have to get her up right at that angle. And he does just that despite the fact that this, you know, this girl just wants to fuck him because they went on a date and he's like, okay, but we'll wait till tomorrow so that he could, you know, set up his camera from across so the So that street. he can film it as part yeah. of the Peepar show. Yeah. <laughs> So he films it. He has the red light going, but you know, we all know what the phallic symbol is, the camera, and the, the, he can't keep it up, unfortunately. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the sexual act, I'm sure, went swimmingly as we find out later <laughs> on uh, that they have a family on the way. <laughs> they have a little baby on the way. Uh, but the, the camera kept panning down. So then we get the, you know, he develops the film, brings it right to the producer, and we see it. And unfortunately, we do (laughs) see the camera pan down to the young revolutionary, uh, putting himself in black face, black body, black penis uh, being the very last <laughs> thing and we see his his hesitation to paint his bare what, penis what, black before yeah that, that that that's what's funny is he's I, entirely black except for his white penis yeah, in yeah. the shot so and, and, and the porn producer is like I paid two thousand dollars for a for a dude doing blackface except for his penis I also read that the reason that like before this movie was actually got an X rating and they made it so and the only reason was because he painted his penis black and they're like, no, you can't have that. Oh my God. So just show the penis. That's so funny. And uh, you're good. Just don't have him paint the penis. I thought that was fucking hilarious. So there's <laughs> my little so, trivia uh, knowledge there. Yeah. And I love how it's just like John traded in his t- uh, his camera for a TV set. And like yes. so many, you know, we see his this film story career went poorly. <laughs> yeah, we see this story all the time. If you're on film Twitter, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, guy goes to Brooklyn. He tries to be a filmmaker. He realizes it's not cut out for it. So he turns to political action. <laughs> <laughs> That is that. This is definitely uh, the the uh, peep art uh, sitcom to revolutionary violence pipeline movie <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, Jamie, were you uh, were you taken aback by Dude, kind of the the route that this goes on I'm, in the second I'm, half? <laughs> I'm actually glad you asked me because I know I've been kind of silent throughout this one so far, uh, and it's just because 
th- that really was it. it. It just kind of threw me for a loop. I wasn't quite sure, and I still don't 100% know if I understand uh, the connection <laughs> between him doing the like peep show art and then going to the black revolutionaries and then him being mixed in as playing and we'll get to the details, but like the white cop that's kind of playing the like the brutal yeah. cop. Uh, and I and obviously they chose him for a specific reason. So honestly, I've just been sitting here kind of uh, taking all of it in <laughs> and, and trying to learn something here because I did find myself. Uh, it more is definitely confu- a lot to take in on a first. Yeah, <laughs> I found myself more confused with the connections of the two storylines than I did with targets. For instance, I found like those came together very yeah. just really easily and cohesively, whereas this one I was a little bit more jarred, I guess. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Well, and and, totally. and I think I think that's part of it too because there is, and I like there's a very freewheeling kind of structure to it. Oh, where yeah. Yeah. He really is uh, the character of John Rubin. He really is just kind of following his impulses and moving from underground social movement to the next. Um, presumably, you're supposed to assume because he doesn't really fit into any of the normal ones after Vietnam. The interview with Hirsch, he kind of talked about they came to this character idea and they kind of beat Paul Schrader and taxi driver to this Mm, idea but like part of it was that you know this guy just killed a bunch of people he came back and he's being given this filthy apartment and you know the only things that you know he sees around him that you know sort of strike uh, an, an interest in terms of images is these underground social movements and both in the idea of, you know, sort of like in, in in a filmic sense, both with, with, with porn and, and style experimentation and and things like that. But then to him, it's a, it's sort of uh, listening to Hirsch talk about it. It's really funny that you said what you said too, Jamie, because he's just like, this is the most logical movie I think De Palma and I ever wrote. (laughs) Like to him, he's, (laughs) he's just like, yeah, this just makes perfect sense that he would just, he would, he would immediately move on to the next thing and what's such an interesting idea is how cynically he just kind of adapts to these things like he doesn't he's not like a believer he's he's not someone who looks at these things and he's just like i really do fully believe in this movement Yeah, he does kind of play it like it's just something to do like it's something to focus on almost so it's a task i mean of some kind think think (laughs) Think about how it contrasts him doing setting up the performance so that he can do the peep art and he's timing it and he's like, okay, I got 26 minutes to seduce her. I got to make sure that I don't run out of film and that the camera's rolling at the right time and we can see her at the right time. Like he's very detailed, very to the point. He's he's rehearsing being a boyfriend (laughs) so that he can create this weird sicko art out of it. And the other time that we see him rehearsing um, in this film, the only other time is when he's shouting at a fake hippie protester oh, and he's so literally good. doing police brutality on like a ladder and a mop and like slapping it around. And he's like, you think make love, not war. I make love pretty well. You slut. <laughs> he starts like slapping the broom. <laughs> that, that might be the funniest scene in the movie is De Niro's <laughs> audition for be black baby, uh, where it's just cutting to, you know, it very quickly cut in those jump cuts, uh, to just the best moments of De Niro flipping the fuck out. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. And I, I also like that, as I said, you know, he's doing the mixed format thing and I didn't really describe what he's doing though. The All the NIT, National Intellectual Television stuff, that's what follows this theater trip. The first one is about 
uh, the first segment of that rather is early on in the film and it's about them handing out flyers for be black baby and trying to get the word out and there's a very funny scene where they're arguing with these white liberals uh, these old liberals who are like we know we marched in Washington we helped you already <laughs> uh, and while that <laughs> argument is going on you just see a newspaper stand get fucking robbed and like a guy get shot, <laughs> yeah. guy gets shot twice too yeah and no one really reacts it's just kind of like no, uh, no, no one arguing is like <laughs> this is just this is just a thing that happens yeah, in the background like, it's all in this very yeah and it's all in this very uh like frenetic 16 millimeter uh you know doc tv documentary style that reminds me kind of of like uh and i've made this comparison of other stuff before but reminded me just a couple years earlier was frederick wiseman's law and order which there are a couple scenes in that that literally feel like they're in a snuff film you know because it's like Mm -hmm. 16 millimeter handheld footage of actual police brutality uh and this film kind of recalled that style of realism to me particularly in now we get to i think part three of that nit series the b black baby performance itself one Uh, of the the great set pieces unhinged and like harrowing things that he's ever filmed oh oh, yeah (laughs) absolutely (laughs) oh my god absolutely man so basically the play is an interactive experience. You know, you get these audience members, these uh, uh, these bourgeoisie, uh, liberal, or even they would think to themselves left of liberal, intellectual New Yorkers who read the New Yorker, and they want to know what it's like to be black. So what does this theater troupe do? Uh, they treat them how white America treated black people. First, they rob them. They like they literally take their wallets, uh, take the money out of them, take the lady's purse, uh, and then they put them in blackface and they force feed them uh, soul food. And it's one of the funniest <laughs> black eyed peas. Yeah. yeah. Just like watching this fucking like chubby white guy with blackface already dripping off of his face being force fed pig feet is so good uh and just like the fragile white lady she didn't take her purse but she took my purse (laughs) i don't like that (laughs) yeah i i i I like too when they they have them feel the texture of uh like black people's skin and hair and have them describe it and one dude is like it feels like steel wool but soft (laughs) (laughs) good lord insane but comedy uh, slowly kind of fades as it becomes more yes. and more and more intense. De Palma escalates yeah. this set piece over 20 minutes. It's like, I think it's a two camera setup. Pretty much feels like real time just cutting between the two cameras. There's like very yeah. few moments where it feels like he's speeding ahead in time. And it, I think it's definitely one of his best edited set pieces, despite the fact that it's literally just cutting between two 16 millimeter handheld cameras you know yeah yeah just watching the chaos really um yeah because it's it's like and and, and it's a complete uh dionysus in 68 but it's just like his version of doing that in actual cinema rather because dionysus in 68 what he does is uh he does a split screen presentation of the full play uh, so he do- he shoots with two cameras and presents it in split screen. Here he's using editing. I mean, he would return to split screen later on, obviously. But I think the the editing here is what makes this come alive as cinema, rather than watching a fake version of an interactive play. You know? 
Yeah. 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 Well, and it's, it's for, for me, it's just like a completely visceral shattering of sort of like this, 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 that distance that we've been talking about, this idea of something on TV, you know, is there's, there's, there's that inherent distance to it between sort of like the artist and the audience. And this just breaks down that safety barrier. Um, you are just dropped the same way that these audience members, you know, because at first you're just kind of the the ridiculousness of what the students have come up with as an idea on an image level is kind of it's it's kind of funny. And you're engaging with it on that level of watching these kind of just like very uppity white liberals being put blackface on and being kind of given a microcosm of the black experience is the idea. But then as he just continues on in real time and he builds that unbearable uh, sense of sort of like assault and humiliation um, of it as he basically just unleashes full racist and sexual violence on um, all of these people mm-hmm. and it's really, really brutal. Like you, as, as Eddie kind of pointed out, you do feel like, cause I haven't seen law and order, but if it, if it as it was, as Eddie described that it, it just feels like snuff footage of police brutality. That's eventually what this just ends up feeling like, even though he maintains that, um, that screen format of it looking like you're watching on one of those kind of like oval television screens, right. like it's 16 millimeter, but it, but like the, the, it's, it's sort of cut in within the frame to look like you're just watching this on yeah, TV. Have the curved edges. But they would never fucking show this shit on TV. Yeah. Like it, and, and like that 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 contradiction actually just makes it even freakier, um, almost in a way, as they literally just start like, you know, uh herding them like cattle at gunpoint and assaulting them, uh selling them like sex slaves, literally raping them. And then yeah. that's before De Niro um comes in as the cop character. And he immediately deputizes all of the black characters who are wearing white face and uh, be playing the white characters in this performance. He immediately deputizes them and starts just <laughs> beating up all of the white people in in blackface because they don't have their IDs because they've all been robbed. Yeah, it's, it's like incredible. it's such a crazy thing where you like you know what you're watching isn't a real thing that it's performance but somehow it builds to a real sense of like you feel like you're watching police brutality you feel like you're watching i was definitely uncomfortable uh, you know racist (laughs) and sexual violence like it's what you feel like you're watching and it's all done in just the way that you know he's 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 filmed it and the best touch of all of this is that when those people get out man yes yeah Oh, they get out the and they realize back. finally, yeah, they realize that, oh my God, that was, that was all part of the show. It didn't get out of hand at all. <laughs> I'm going to um, invite my friends. They should all be a part of this. <laughs> I love the, the Clyde Barnes was really right. That was yeah. a great show. He, he's, he was the theater critic in New York at the time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, and yeah, it's like, you think maybe, maybe the woman who was sexually assaulted would think would that it have would an issue and as she's as she's walking out in her clothes are completely torn apart you know looks like she's wearing mm-hmm. rags and you know all of these white characters just in the new york street with blackface dripping off of them uh also covered <laughs> in sweat just disheveled and i i don't think it's the lady who was assaulted i think it's the other lady who looks at the camera and says it makes you really understand what it's like to be a negro And it's one of the craziest line deliveries I've 
ever. And like, she's immediately corrected to say, and then she just says black right after that. Uh, But like that line delivery after what we've just seen is one of the most like that. (laughs) That's De Palma as the political ironist at his finest. I don't think he's ever like uh, surpassed that maybe outside of his film redacted, but that feels like that's his like best moment right there as a political ironist. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I love how they're, they're all talking in that language too, where they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm just tickled that I came. This was invigorating. Should have been called <laughs> humiliate the honky. I think though. <laughs> <laughs> and w- what's crazy too, is that this is, this is the middle chapter of the movie. There's still one more chapter left where, yeah. you know, he, he, he realizes because of the way that they experienced that and the, and their reaction to the show they realize that what they're doing still isn't enough to get across the actual message, what they got. They're like, they still don't get it. They still don't like They think that that was a fun little show that they went out to on a Friday night, that that wasn't the experience that people actually have. So, what does he get into? He get he starts reading the urban gorilla and he well, starts getting actually, into. Oh, I was going to say the urban gorilla segment is after he kind of ditches that group and goes solo. What happens after that is they just want to infiltrate the homes of these people and bring mm-hmm. basically bring B Black Baby to the houses of people. Uh, right, but it, but, it, but 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 actually he, he actually cross cuts between because it cuts oh, okay. first to De Niro reading the book. And he's, he starts describing paramilitary activities in urban areas and plotting on bringing Be Black Baby to, you know, the silent majority, yeah. as they say it, bringing it into these more urban spaces and uh, to, all, to all the people who are smoking their pipes and reading the New York Times and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah, it, it's funny he's like he, this, but it's a different approach. It's like you have this up tempo, almost heist music uh, behind yes. th- this infiltration that De Niro watches on TV while he just has yes. his gun in hand. Uh, and like, it's such an incredible set piece in terms of building momentum as they all kind of flood into this apartment building. But then one of them just gets snatched by the neck and, tor- and brought into an apartment building. One gets shot and it's like the end of targets where it's like, Oh yeah, no, the, uh, the conservative white Americans with guns are still out there despite the liberal hippies that, you know, uh, might be clouding your judgment of America. And, you know, a door gets opened and we basically see, you know, the family from targets. We see a nuclear American family <laughs> huddled around a fucking turret. Uh, just <laughs> yeah. Like a Gatlin people. gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. <laughs> and De Niro's response is just to shoot his pistol, like at the TV and, uh, De Palma reverses the footage and fast forwards yeah. it and replays it like five times. And it's just this catharsis. Uh, and it's, it's a, an incredible set piece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as that set piece is taking place, it's going back and forth actually between him reading about, the idea that organized revolutionary movements have always been infiltrated, infiltrated. by agents. So yeah. yeah. So successful acts of sabotage have to be carried out by single individuals. A lone saboteur must assimilate into the urban, urban community and assume the bougie lifestyle and everything like that. 
So you get that so, little slice of domesticity with his date who he impregnated, uh, which I would assume maybe the first like time, probably the only time he had sex coming back from Vietnam, at least like in this fugue <laughs> detached state. Uh, and he impregnated this woman, you know, they got a bun in the oven. He's like, okay, I'm going to go put the laundry in. And he blows <laughs> up the fucking building and you get this incredible long t- take uh, with this zoom in as he's running down the hallway, apparently like the longest hallway they could find in that neighborhood for the shot. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's so great. And again, go back to the TV and we get this guy, um, <clears throat> a man, a black man named Dr. King, you know, De Palma winks at the camera uh, <laughs> or from behind the camera. Rather. And he's talking about how this man must have been a victim of his circumstance. You know, look, look at America around you. These people are going to snap the, the, uh, the poverty, like the disparity in uh, wealth that people have and the, the social systems that are worthless and this endless war. And then De Niro in uniform <laughs> comes by and he's like, you know, I, I don't like what you're saying. I, I was just sweeping up some other country. I come over here and I got this bullshit going on. I'm sick of this. And then they censor a bunch. You have to think he's dropping the N word, honestly. <laughs> one where it's like really bad. It's like, oh, this is pure Bickle mode. There was you know? one slur in uh, there at least. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> uh, then he ends the movie by saying the title and he, he says hi to his mommy from the TV. And it's a great joke to end the movie. Yeah, Big sitcom um, music but, again. Yeah, exactly. But that solo infiltration and then not just living the liberal bougie lifestyle, but being like a fucking, you know, right wing nut uh, and saying that we need to protect America as his cover for blowing up a building is just a fantastic cherry on top. And and, and what's so crazy about that, too, is that De Palma, he, he, he sets you into like that sitcom kind of moment where he's talking he, he you know he's he, he's selling policies he's reading the paper he's smoking his pipe he's talking to his to his pregnant wife and and you know uh everything like that but we know right away that all of this is performance because of all the different characters that he's played in the movie and that he's rehearsed to play we know that he's just playing you know this guy who infiltrated and he's taking with him this idea that you know all of the radicals that you know he sort of uh collaborated with on their performance art were all brutally killed and he's just pretending to be part of like the sort of like white America aspect of it. But then he, when, when he blows it up, like, cause we're supposed to presume that he blows up the building with his pregnant wife in it. Right. That's right. Which is just insane. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he, like we literally watch him disintegrate the American, like TV sitcom domestic lifestyle parody that he's doing. He literally explodes it and kills everyone inside. And what's funny is that when he does it, the other than this Dr. King guy, the people don't actually seem to care that much. Like, like that, like that murder mugging talking. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's the same as that murder that takes place at the newsstand. Uh, it's just another thing that happens on your TV screen that you watch. Why does it matter? Um, and they're watching like the people who come up, they're just super excited. They're just like, Hey, more space to walk my dogs, man. Yeah, one guy's super That's excited cool. about it. <laughs> he said it was a great thing. Yeah, I love happen. how he leads. He's like, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people in this neighborhood have dogs, man. You know, 
we want some space to walk those dogs, man. And then there's another dude who's like, I never liked that building. I lost my wallet in that building. <laughs> yeah, he says, uh, you ever look at who goes in and out of that building? A lot of strange characters, all hours of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love De Palma's like evisceration of that bourgeoisie lifestyle, even though they're in housing projects, it's like still that, that mindset that those people have of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. lifestyle that he's eviscerating. And like in that little scene with his wife, uh, De Niro even says one of the, if you're going to say anything in the film is actually racist. It's when he, it says to his wife that she doesn't have to worry about, uh, you know, taking care of everything. He's going to hire some cheap colored help. And it's like, oh my <laughs> God, yep. like, well, he has like his hair slicked back in the pipe and his, his wife. Yeah. 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 Like that is, that is such a, just like brutal vision of what that traditional nuclear American family is at this moment in time. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really just can't say enough about how, uh, you know, scathing, hilarious, uh, and just perfect this film is for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, pivoting towards, um, reductive rating round here, this is, this is probably like my, my third watch on this one. Mm. And, um, as obviously, you know, we've, De Palma has to be probably the filmmaker we've talked about the most on, on this show. So I basically just, you know, I'm a, I'm, I, people will call me a Stan at this point, but this one (laughs) for sure is, uh, one that has really sat with me. A lot of its ideas have sat with me longer than other De Palma. So this one's the five for me. Um, especially I think to just the way on like a, you know, uh, a, a filming level that this goes from sort of like domestic, uh, sex comedy almost to sort of like sitcom parody to filmmaking auto critique to like the experimental radical theater that really gets under your skin to full out like guerrilla violence and then back to the sitcom. And it does all of this with effortless ease, just like painting a culture of, you know, racism and masochism and, and violence. And it's a really just insane piece of low bid budget filmmaking that at every turn into typical De Palma fashion, you know, it, it implicates the camera. It implicates the, the film and the television itself in this cycle of what sort of, you know, the the sort of social bonds of what America looked like at this point in, in time. And frequently it plays like comedy um, while also, you know, very subtly and darkly like breaking rules of both film and also social normacy and attempt to expose all these like strange contradictions and hypocrisies and impulses. And it, it really has just like uh, gone up my De Palma uh, ranking estimations pretty much every single time that I've watched it. So yeah, this is really incredible. And again, I never expected to see a film that, you know, uh, again, traced the, the peep art to uh, protest violence pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) and have it actually make uh, some semblance of character sense. And also, we didn't get to talk about it a whole lot, but De Niro, my God, uh, just an absolute fucking chameleon. I was just going to say, in this movie, Uh, just the way he cynically invades all of those spaces and becomes one with the performances that he's putting on while also uh, destroying them. Um, in a lot of different ways. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that almost everything that he gets into, uh, either, you know, it ends up failing, all the people die, or he literally fucking blows it up. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then ending it all by looking at the TV screen and going, giving his mom a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just in- incredible. Um, incredible. Yeah. I'm going to give it the, the four for now. Uh, it is, it is very strong. I just felt like I, I was pretty, uh, ignorant on why I was liking the movie a lot of the time. Um, I was kind of expecting more of a, like when he opens up with that rear uh, window, those images, I was expecting more of like a sleazy pornographic De Palma version of rear window or something like that. So when it like, like more, more, more of, more of like the thriller type structure. So when it, when it starts crossing with um, the, like the black revolutionaries and their kind of like, their art piece that they're creating and then merging it together. I wasn't quite sure what coming together. I wasn't quite sure what the two stories were saying in that sense, like cohesively. Um, but what, but what I am understanding more so after this conversation is the, uh, like you said, the chameleon that is Robert De Niro in this movie, just how it's like a man that can't quite find any real discernible identity. And so he just goes from like one social activism thing to the next or, and not even that it's not like just really anything because it's not just necessarily social activism. It's also like, just, I'm going to make a porno. I've got a producer friend. Yeah. It's it's, it's, it's underground filmmaking. And then it's, it's like literally like domestic terrorism. Like it's like, man just trying to find himself, I guess in the, in the grossest (laughs) possible way. Um, yeah, but, but, but what's interesting is they use that as a way of showing that like, you know, it's more about the fact that all of these different spaces exist is because of the sickness of, you know, the way that America has been organized in its own way. And here's a guy just kind of wandering it like, uh, like screwball comedy, just dropping into each room (laughs) of what America looks like. But still not shying away from the brutality of like the police violence and even, even just like the, the street violence that occurs when they're doing the interviews and some guy gets just shot in the background yeah. and no one seems to care, you know, things like that. So yeah, I think I just need more time with this uh, cause it is a lot to Definitely. take in. It was very jarring, but I really did enjoy it. And I mean, De Palma once again, just knocks it out of the park. So God damn it, De Palma, you were yeah. a master. <laughs> um, this, this was my fifth time watching this. So I got oh my it God. The five baby. Oh yeah. Uh, but damn. I will say my first time I only gave it like three and a half, like, and then I gave it four okay. the next time. And then I gave it a five, 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 you know, uh, but it, it's one <laughs> that I think the structure makes more sense when you've already seen it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think it is kind of structured in a way that sometimes art house movies are structured where it's like a structure of ideas rather than one that results in the, uh, the payoff that like a, how a genre movie is generally structured, you know, like mm-hmm. how I talked about with targets, like that one, despite Bogdanovich wanting to make a very self-conscious movie about where they were going with movies, uh, he like couldn't help, but stay true to his genre instincts and bring in like a fucking tight genre movie. This one doesn't quite go there. Like De Palma wasn't quite who he would become yet. Uh, Like, I think that balance of Hitchcock and Godard slash Brecht or whatever, uh, the scale was tipped a little bit here, but he still manages to make a masterpiece. And that's why I think, like, it's his best movie until, you know, the 80s when he fully comes into his own with that balance of Mm -hmm. Hitchcock, 
Brecht studio, you know, quote unquote friendliness enough to get movies made at least. <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that this is just a milestone for one of his most incredibly provocative films. And if you pair this with something like redacted, you will see him, you know, 40 years apart making films about America's problems at the time through bitter political irony, but also having those genre chops to just make disgusting and crazy set pieces come to life. Um, so yeah, this yeah, is absolutely. a masterpiece for me. And, and, and be black baby almost as its own short film inside <laughs> the film definitely ranks, I think yeah. at the top of one of the craziest things that he's just ever put on the screen. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. For me, this like I even, mean, even, I'm even just here, the image of seeing, you know, these black students in white face, just replicating snuff, police footage <laughs> against liberals in blackface is one of the craziest things Ooh, and weirdly enough it, <laughs> afterwards yeah it, it actually it actually translates to something that we're going to be talking about next week uh black caesar which right. also has Ooh. uh which, which which has fred williamson suffer police brutality and in his quest for revenge he actually uh, puts the policeman in blackface yep. and eventually kind of like attempts to beat him to death to uh, change the power hierarchy where he in- he imagines himself as a white cop beating up this cop in blackface it's crazy yeah, it's wild it's very wild yeah black caesar is a crazy movie yeah so we're going to be talking about that uh <laughs> that that next week but i think that'll wrap it up for uh this week's episode that was targets from 1968 and Hymon from 1970 uh thanks so much eddie for joining yes. us and for bringing these uh film films with you uh if you've got no, anything to plug while you're here this is usually where we have oh. to do that well you know i i do a podcast and uh <laughs> it's called <laughs> Chapo Trap House. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do a podcast called Extended Clip. And like this one, uh, me and two of my friends, Malcolm and JT, uh, two esteemed cinephiles like myself, uh, we, we do a double feature every week. Yeah, we, we stole your guys' shit, uh, like straight up. You will um, be hearing from our people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Josh has been on the show a couple times. We also have a bonus feed where we do different stuff we stole from another podcast too so we have another show on our patreon where it's like we go through the filmography of a director uh one by one that show is called bank check the the extended clip patreon is only two bucks a month we're we're undercutting the market so go check that out you will find full series (laughs) excuse me that was from the diet (laughs) coke i've been drinking uh you will find full series on the filmographies of the Fairley brothers and michael cimino <laughs> and so much other shit and your boy josh nice. has made multiple appearances the next episode of yeah Extended i think i think Clip, I, I appeared on the cimino where we talked to deer hunter and thunderbolt and lightfoot and also dang, when i did right. a guest on one of the normal episodes we've both brought De palma on each other's shows because i think uh, we did <laughs> deja right. vu and femme fatale oh nice that is absolutely right and the next episode of extended clip is going to be about Zack Snyder's Justice League and Josh. Yeah, is actually, be by the time us. by the time this goes up, I think our talk on the Snyder Cut should already be up. Oh yeah, that's coming out this Monday. Yeah, so, yeah, so, be so by the Check time you guys out. are listening to this episode, that was last Monday. So if yeah. you want to hear Eddie and I talk about the Snyder Cut along with Malcolm and JT, we're going to be doing that. Uh, we've already done it. Yeah, time travel, right. baby. <laughs> that's right. And. And follow me on Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com slash Eddie underscore A. 
Nice. Do it up. Eddie, Eddie is always watching all kinds of obscure films that I get lots of, uh, I, I add lots of things to my watch list following Eddie on letterbox. So can't recommend. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always um, playing uh war zone with Josh telling him about the porno I've been watching. Uh, <laughs> that's I, right. I know there's some pinku heads. You guys have talked about some Sato. Follow me for some pinku recommendations. <laughs> 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 Hell yeah. Well, for, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time. As I already kind of alluded to, we're going to be talking uh, black exploitation crime films. We're going to be talking Black Caesar by Larry Cohen starring Fred Williamson, which is sort of a black exploitation update on kind of like the old uh, 30s gangster films. It literally takes its name from uh, Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson, but also, you know, things like uh, uh, Howard Hawks' Scarface yeah. and... Um, uh, public enemy and things like that. Uh, and we're going to be pairing that with uh, Jonathan Kaplan's 1974 film, Truck Turner, starring uh, starring Isaac Hayes as well as an, a soundtrack by Isaac Hayes oh, yeah, uh, following up his Oscar winning soundtrack for the movie Shaft. Oh, nice. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to be talking about truck Turner, which was kind of his version of Shaft. In my opinion, it's a better version than Shaft. Um, and truck, uh, Isaac Hayes, uh, when he did the score for Shaft, he thought that he was going to be the lead, but they kind of fucked him over. Oh, uh, so instead he went on and made this. And I think it's just honestly one of the best, um, little black exploitation action movies uh, that has ever been put on the screen, and it uh, Black Caesar is uh, New York guerrilla filmmaking. Truck Turner is L.A. So we're going to be talking the two sides nice. of sort of the uh, the the black exploitation uh, city action crime films. We're going to have some fun doing that. And that's actually setting us up for the episode we're going to do after, where we're going to have special guest uh, Jason Buford on the show, who uh, is bringing with him some sort of um, uh, comedic black exploitation, some black exploitation satires, which is why I felt like we needed to get a black exploitation episode in there first yeah. before we did it. Get, get some more classical, get some some of the canon ones in there. And then we're going to be talking about uh, Rudy Ray Moore's Petey Wheatstraw, uh, <laughs> yes. one of his follow-up films yes. to Dolomite. So excited. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to talk Petey Wheatstraw, which is an insane movie. I can't even give, a, give you a log line for it. Uh, just read up on it. It's insane. And uh, we're going to be pairing that with Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Oh, boy. Which is kind of more in line with something that's happening a little bit with High Mom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're going to kind of see black artists uh, taking control of the black exploitation genre on their own terms and kind of making these these very uh, witty and uh, interesting satires, especially using the formal qualities of them as well. So we're going to be talking about black artists kind of reclaiming some of those stereotypical images that were coined you in say, the 70s. So did you say Jason Buford was the guest on that one? That is, yep. Awesome, dude. I cannot wait to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have an absolute blast. So we're going to get really crazy in the next two weeks here. Uh, yeah. So stay tuned. Uh, but yeah, that being said, I think that wraps up for everything this week. Thanks so much, uh, everyone, for for listening and for uh, supporting the show and everything that you guys do. Oh, yeah. Um, until then, uh, until next week anyway, uh, keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.